In our study of the Christian virtues, we are looking first at 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 7, which reads as follows, but also for this very reason, giving to giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Last time we looked at the two virtues of faith and virtue. And we saw that these are foundational kinds of things, faith being the uh, only way we can acquire these virtues. We have to seek them from the hand of God by asking for them. And virtue being that uh, purity of nature in which the individual virtues can arise. This time I want to look especially at the next two of these virtues, knowledge and self-control. Now when Peter talks about knowledge here in this uh, verse, he uh, means, of course, the knowledge of God in Christ. That is, all that God has revealed to us in his word. The Apostle Paul talks about this knowledge in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, when he says of Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this is the knowledge that he's talking about. He's not talking about knowledge in general. He's not talking about uh, knowledge of mathematics or knowledge of science or knowledge of history in general, that sort of thing. He's talking about the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. And if you look through the scriptural uses of that term, knowledge, you will find that almost always the scriptures use that term in this narrower way. They rarely mean by the term knowledge, general knowledge. They almost always mean knowledge of God in Christ. And this knowledge is, of course, the knowledge of faith. That is, it's not knowledge that we receive by means of reason in the first place, though reason may be our assistant as we seek to acquire this knowledge. Nor is it the uh, knowledge of observation, empirical knowledge. It is knowledge that we receive by means of believing the Word of God, believing what God says. And not only does this knowledge then come to us by faith, but it is a knowledge that involves more than simply knowing about something. This knowledge is the knowledge that Jesus described in John chapter 17, verse 3, in his great high priestly prayer, when he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There is involved in this idea of knowledge here in Peter, then, the knowing God through union with Christ, being one with Christ and knowing him, therefore, by living in and through him. There are other passages in the scriptures that talk about this knowledge. 
in that way. For example, Luke chapter 1 verse 77 in the Song of Zacharias, Zacharias says that um, and uh, John came to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. So this is knowledge that comes uh, to the people of God. It, it is a knowledge of salvation, and of course that salvation is a gift itself, and the knowledge comes along with the salvation, and it's a knowledge that he says comes by the remission of their sins. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the Apostle Paul again says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Or Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul says, I Indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And of course, the knowledge of Christ Jesus is the knowledge of Christ as his Lord. It's not just the knowledge of Christ as Lord in general, but the knowledge of Christ as his Lord. And 2 Peter 3, verse 8, as well, 18, rather, 2 Peter 3, verse 18. But grow, Peter says, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. And he means not only grow in the acquisition of scriptural revelation, but grow in intimacy with the Lord who has given to you salvation. So knowledge consists then, this special knowledge consists of two parts, really. It consists of the acquisition of the things that are revealed in the scriptures, the um, bringing of those things into our minds, and it consists also of knowing God in Christ Jesus as our Savior. This is the knowledge that Peter is talking about. There is, of course, a knowledge of the Scriptures that is not true knowledge. And again, we can refer to several Scripture passages. Acts chapter 13, for example, where Paul was preaching to the Jews in Antioch, and he said of that those Jews and their rulers that they did not know the voices of the prophets. Verse 27, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, that is God, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Now those uh, rulers of the Jews knew the Old Testament scriptures. They were the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and so on. These were men well acquainted with the scriptures. But Paul says of them, they did not know the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. They had not come to a saving knowledge 
of God in Christ through those scriptures. In Romans chapter 2, verse 20, there's another reference to this kind of head knowledge without uh, intimacy or union with Christ. Paul says of the Jews there that they are confident that they are instructor, uh, instructors of the foolish, teachers of babes. They have the form of knowledge and truth in the law, but they do not, of course, have true knowledge. And 1 Timothy 6, verse 20 as well. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. So there is a knowledge of the scriptures. It's not, that does not lead to salvation. That's not the knowledge that Peter is talking about. Peter is talking about that saving knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is also a use in the scriptures, a specialized use of this term knowledge in connection with the charismatic gifts. And there are several passages in 1 Corinthians which talk about knowledge in this way. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 5. Paul gives thanks to God that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. And I think he's talking about those special charismatic gifts there in which the Corinthians were very rich. Chapter 12, verse 8 mentions this gift also. Paul says, therefore, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. So he's going through a list of the different charismatic gifts, and he's saying one of those charismatic gifts is a gift of knowledge. Chapter 13, verse 8 also mentions this gift. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And he's talking there about the cessation of the charismatic gifts. And he says that one of these charismatic gifts is knowledge, and this too will vanish away. He doesn't mean that knowledge in general will vanish away, or that the knowledge that God reveals in the scriptures will vanish away. He means that this special gift of knowledge Uh, given only to some, will vanish away. It will come to an end. And chapter 14, verse 6 as well. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? And here, of course, he's showing the inferiority of the gift of tongues to these other uh, gifts of the Spirit the uh, gifts of revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. But that also is not the kind of knowledge Peter is talking about, that special charismatic gift. He's talking about a gift of knowledge that's given to all of God's people in varying measures, to be certain, but nevertheless, all of God's people have this knowledge. So, knowledge then is the first thing that we want to understand, that Uh, knowledge of what God has revealed in the scriptures and that union with Christ, that believing union with Christ. 
by which we have eternal life. This, along with faith and virtue, are the basis on which we can build the rest of the virtues. Faith, is, as we've seen, is the only way to obtain the virtues that Peter lists after this. Uh, virtue, that is the purity of heart and will, is the necessary precondition of our natures. We cannot uh, hope to develop these virtues unless we have first been sanctified by the Spirit of Christ. And knowledge, knowledge so that we know what to seek in this matter of virtues, how to seek them, and the purpose of these virtues, the well-being of our neighbor and the glory of our God. Now the last five of the virtues that Peter mentions here in 2 Peter 1 are more specific in character. And Peter begins in this particular uh, list of virtues with self-control. Now that word is not a word that is used very often in the scriptures. The word itself and its cognates uh, appear only uh, five other times. And I want to look at all those passages that use one form or another of this word because I think each of those passages has something to say to us about this whole idea of self-control. By the way, the King James Version translated this word as often as temperance or moderation, uh, but temperance has very unfortunate connotations in uh, the English language beginning with the 20th century because of its association with the temperance movement. And so that's not a, a useful translation of the word anymore. Self-control is better for us. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9 is the first passage we're going to look at. And there the apostle is talking to single people and he is advising them to marry if they cannot exercise self-control. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So the self-control here has to do with sexual desires and sexual intimacy. If they cannot exercise self-control in this specific area, then they should marry, he says. Now, self-control is not limited to sexual desire and sexual behavior. We're going to see that as we look at further instances, but this is one area in which it needs to be practiced. And this passage illustrates well the idea of that word self-control. The second passage is also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. And here the apostle applies this generally. We should read the last few verses of the chapter, beginning with verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? but one receives the prize. 
run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate, self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul uses this word self-control in the whole context of sports and athletics. And he says, an athlete who wants to obtain a perishable crown, that is the, um, the prize of victory, needs to practice self-control. They need to practice self-control in diet, in exercise, in uh, drinking and partying and such things. They need to practice self-control in their adherence to their sport so that they devote sufficient time to that to obtain uh, a high level of mastery in it. You don't get to the top in athletics, the apostle is saying, without a great deal of self-control or self-discipline. You need to restrain various desires and you need to restrain various practices or you will never get there. And you need to discipline yourself to do certain things and to do them frequently and for long periods of time or you will never get there. And so the apostle says, this is what the Christian life is like. It's the strenuous practice of self-control in many areas of life in spiritual matters as well as in uh, bodily matters. It's, but it's a strenuous thing, and he talks about how strenuous it is when he applies this idea of self-control. I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Another very interesting passage that uses this idea of self-control is Acts 24, verse 25. Here, the Apostle Paul was presenting the gospel to Felix. Verse 24, after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now it's, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul is presenting the gospel to Felix. And he talks about righteousness. That's something we would expect him to do. And he talks about judgment. That's also something we would expect him to do. But he also talks about self-control. Self-control is part of his presentation of the gospel. A very interesting thing. Perhaps he did that because Felix was a rather dissolute man and it was necessary for him to hear that message of the necessity of self-control. We don't know. 
But nevertheless, the Apostle Paul did not just present the ideas, the basic ideas of sin and the cross and forgiveness of sins and so on in Christ, but he talked in presenting the gospel to Felix about the necessity of self-control. The word appears in another list in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, as part of the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And finally, it appears in Titus chapter 1, in the list of qualifications for elder. Titus 1, verse 7, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. This idea of self-control, then, is the idea of the virtue of uh, mastering our desires and passions and controlling our behavior. I think it's uh, Thayer, in his Greek dictionary, who defines it as the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. So that's the, the idea of self-control. Now one of the first things that parents find when they give birth to children is that very small children have no self-control. If they are hungry, they cry. If they are angry, they throw a temper tantrum. If they have to go, they go. If they want to talk, they talk. If they want a toy, they grab it. They don't practice the virtue of self-control. They have to be trained. When they're old enough, they have to be taught, for example. If you are hungry, you ask politely for food. If you are angry, you need to suppress your anger or deal with that anger in a proper way. When you have to go, you have to hold it and you have to tell someone so that that person can help you. All of us, therefore, it's very clear in these very practical earthly matters, learn a measure of self-control about many things in life. And this virtue then, as we consider it in the spiritual realm, becomes for us then the ability to restrain, suppress, or redirect our desires and our behavior. Now some desires are good, but even with regard to these good desires, we have to learn to wait for their satisfaction. God does not promise or give instant gratification of all our desires. We need to learn to practice self-control and to wait on the Lord. Some desires and impulses are bad and must be suppressed 
or redirected. That is, there are desires that we have that simply have to be killed, or we have to train them to uh, go in a proper direction, or to have a proper object. In fact, of course, the need for self-control arises from the disorder in our desires caused by our fall into sin and the corruption of our natures. As we are in Adam, our fundamental desires are evil. Those desires are the desire to be as God, remember Adam and Eve in the garden. They are the desire to have our own way and to do our own will rather than the will of God. They are the natural inclination to love ourselves first rather than God and the neighbor before ourselves. So self-control in the biblical sense is a virtue possible only to the sanctified. Uh, unbelievers can practice self-control in various matters. There's no denying that. But they do not practice self-control in these fundamental desires. To be as God, to do their own will, to believe their own things, to love themselves first, and so on. That those virtues, that virtue in that way, is a virtue possible only to those who have been saved in Christ. And this virtue, then, of self-control leads to control over the mind, over the eyes, and over the hands, or, if you will, over the behavior. Let's look again at some scriptural passages which indicate this. First of all, control of our minds. That is, we're not free to think whatever we want to think. And so the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's very necessary then to practice self-control of our thoughts. Secondly, it's necessary to practice self-control of our eyes. It was here that we saw, we see uh, Eve sinning in the first place. Look at Genesis 3, verses 5, 6, and 7, and the mention of seeing and eyes that we find there. The serpent said to her, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent says, you will see. You will know good and evil. You will be like God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She did not control her eyes. And verse 7 then, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So their eyes were opened, but not so that they were as God, but rather so that they knew that they were naked. The eyes, then, in Scripture, 
stand for the external expression of our desires. Our eyes turn towards those things that we desire. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. And so she took of its fruit and ate. And again, then, in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, here, Abraham's servants and Lot's servants were in conflict because there was not enough pasturage for all their flocks. And so Abraham proposed a separation and gave Lot the choice of where he would go. 13 verse 10, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. And you can almost uh, feel Lot's uh, covetousness for that land. That land was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. And he chose that land for himself and ended up, of course, pitching his tent toward Sodom. We see this same abuse of the eyes then in David's Seeing first seeing Bathsheba as she bathed on the roof of her house. And finally, the hands. I want to uh, go here to Proverbs 31 and to the description of the virtuous woman that we find there in Proverbs 31. Notice how often hands are mentioned in connection with this description. First of all, in verse 13, it said of her, she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. And notice she is controlling her hands to do work, good work. She willingly works with her hands. And then again in verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. And that word profits here is literally the fruit of her hands. From the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Again in verse 19, she stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. And verse 20, she extends her hand to the poor, yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. And so finally in verse 31, Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. This virtuous woman is one who is using her hands to do good. Self-control, therefore, is self-control not only of the desires, that's where it begins, but control of the mind, control of the eyes, and control of the hands. It's also closely related to some other virtues. It's closely related, for example, to the virtue of contentment. Contentment, uh, as I think you can readily understand, makes self-control easier. If we are content, our desires are not as strong. Self-denial is another virtue it's closely related to. Self-denial is a result of self-control. If we are self-controlled, we will learn to practice self-denial. Moderation, perhaps another form of self-denial, is a 
result also of self-control, that is, the practice of not overindulging in anything. And finally, patience, which is another kind of self-control, and we'll be talking about that soon. Now, there are some examples, both on the negative side and the positive side in the scriptures. Let's refer just to one in each case. A positive example is Job 31, verse 1, where Job says of himself, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? He's talking about chastity, of course, sexual restraint, proper godly sexual restraint, but it could be with regard to any kind of evil. I have made a covenant with my eyes. And perhaps the negative example that comes most quickly to mind from the scriptures is uh, impulsive Peter, a man who lacked self-control, who impulsively, because of his fear, denied Christ three times, who impulsively said to Christ when Christ prophesied of his uh, coming death, it shall never be, and who tended then to uh, talk immediately of what was in his mind or to do immediately what he wanted to do. We see it again in John 21 when it's, it's Peter, as the disciples are wondering what has happened to the risen Lord, who says, I'm going fishing, and the other disciples go with him. Peter, I think, uh, by nature, lacked this kind of self-control. And it is Peter here in 2 Peter 1 who is telling us this is a Christian virtue which all of us need to develop. We need to develop this virtue of self-control so that we can do those things which God requires of us and refrain from doing those things which God forbids. We must even practice this self-control with our hearts and with our minds. We need to control our desires and we need to control our thoughts so that we are sanctified not only in our behavior but also inwardly in all ways and in all things to the glory of the God of our salvation. May God bless you with his word. Thank <laughs> you.